The mom of one of the Delphi victims wants answers, a quick update on the Chad Daybell hearing. Will Alex Murdoch testify at his friend's federal trial? A day in the life of BOP inmate 02879-509, also known as Ghislaine Maxwell. John Bonet, a cold case unit, is going to take another look. A 28-year-old former playmate pleads guilty to the death of her 71-year-old friend. He disappeared right after he stopped paying her rent. Coincidence. And then, uh, do you get the police force that you deserve? And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. We have a great show for you today. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Hit that little bell so you receive notifications of when we go live or put up new content. Leave me a comment, and remember, you can listen to us anytime on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Just simply type in Crime Talk. All right, one more thing. Please support the people that support the channel. Like many Americans, we got a dog during the pandemic, Miss Winnie the Bulldog. Now, Miss Winnie has grown accustomed to being around us all the time. When we were leaving the house, Winnie would have extreme anxiety, so we decided to look for natural products to help with her anxiety. We looked for the highest quality CBD treats, and we were not satisfied. So we created a high quality CBD product that absorbs faster. Baked in Colorado, CBD treats and beverage enhancers are made with nanotechnology. The nanotechnology makes the CBD extraction more pure, also allows for Baked in Colorado products to work faster. Baked in Colorado products can help reduce your pet's anxiety and help with your dog's skin problems. Go to our online store and see what Baked in Colorado product is best for your dog. When you order at bakedincolorado.com, enter code WINNIE and receive 15% off your first order. If your dog does not experience the desired results in 30 days, return the product and we will refund your money. No questions asked. All right, let's go ahead and open the docket for November 11th of 2022. The mom of one of the two teens murdered in the Delphi, Indiana case back in 2017 is demanding answers after learning the girl's alleged killer lived in plain sight in the tiny community for five and a half years. She stated, quote, if this turns out that he is in fact the killer, how did he manage to go unnoticed for almost six years? That's what Carrie Timmons asked during an interview that she was given just the other day. And for those who aren't familiar with the matter, police arrested Richard Allen on October 26 in connection to the killing of Timmons' 14-year-old daughter, Libby German, and her 13-year-old best friend, Abby Williams, uh, that uh, passed away on February 13th of 2017. Now, Mr. Allen has been charged with two counts of murder, and the bodies of the girls were found a day after they had disappeared while hiking. And grainy footage recovered from Libby's phone showed a man walking near the place where the girls were last seen alive and saying, get down the hill. Now, Allen was a married father of two, lived and worked in the small town of Delphi, Indiana, where the girls lived and died, and where the unsolved murder has uh, kind of rocked that little community of just 3,000 people. Allen was apparently quite familiar to many in the community as he worked at the local CVS, which as a pharmacy technician, and it was the only pharmacy in town. 
Now, Miss Timmons said that she long suspected her daughter's killer had some knowledge of the area, given their ability to get in and out of the Delphi historic trails where the girls' bodies were found. She never suspected the murderer to be a well-known community member. It just seemed logical that they had some kind of local ties at the very least, she said of the suspect. I didn't expect him to be living right under everyone's nose. Well, Libby's grandmother, Becky Patty, also told uh, reporters that Allen had even processed photos of the slain teen at the CVS and uh, graciously didn't charge the family for the cost of the photos. Now, information connecting Allen to the murders and any of the evidence used to obtain a warrant for this arrest have been sealed thus far. So just like Miss Timmons, we, the court of public opinion, would like to know exactly what happened as well. Certainly you could understand her frustration. And I know some people think, well, people live all the time. They didn't get caught. Yeah, but it's a town of 3,000 people. And nobody said, hey, doesn't that kind of look like, uh, you know, the pharmacy tech guy? Doesn't that look like Mr. Allen? Not a single person ever mentioned it. It'll be curious to see. It'll be very interesting to see. I should choose my words more carefully. It'll be very interesting to see what changed over the course of the uh, last six years. All right, next on the docket, a quick update on the uh, Chad DeBell hearing that took place yesterday. Now, there was some audio that was uh, from the court record and it was made available. We put that up, you can take a listen to it. But the thing is, you don't even have to listen to it. You actually just have to listen to what I anticipated was going to be said based upon the motions that were filed uh, by Mr. Pryor on behalf of Chad DeBell seeking severance. The prosecution's argument was basically the same thing that I anticipated. Judge, please don't make us do this. It's really expensive. Oh, and by the way, if there is a limiting instruction given, uh, so some evidence is permissible, say, for example, against Lori Vallow, but not against Chad Daybell. Since jurors are presumed to follow the court's instructions, therefore, it's all going to be okay and don't have to worry about anything. But Mr. Pryor, I think correctly stated, this is going to be a mess evidentiary-wise. And Mr. Pryor wants to bring in all the stuff related about Alex Cox and Lori Vallow in Arizona in regards to the death of Charles Vallow. I think it's probably going to be relevant. The district attorney says, well, we don't think it should come in. We don't know, blah, blah, blah. You would think, I mean, at this point, file a notice of 404B evidence that the prosecution tends to bring in. But this is clearly why these are antagonistic defenses. Chad Daybell wants to bring in evidence of the demise of Lori Vallow's prior husband at the hands of Alex Cox to show that she's a bad person, right? Normally everyone is charged and then the trial is in relation to the crime charged. You have to be able to show that what the government has to show is that any 404B evidence, which is evidence of other crimes, misconduct, acting in conformity therewith, which is prohibited, needs to be narrowly tailored for a specific purpose, not just simply to say, look, this person did it before, therefore they must have done it this time and they're guilty. It's called propensity evidence. It's prohibited. But the defense has an opportunity or should be able to have an opportunity to say, hey, she did it. She did it before. She did it again. How is that not inconsistent? Do you think Lori Vallow and her attorneys want that to come in? Of course not. Chad Day Bell 
does. How is that not an inconsistent theory of defense in this particular case? Unless, of course, the prosecution is going to bring all that in to explain how everything happened. I still think, because I want this case to go, and I think two cases should go to trial, Lori Vallow and Chad DeBell separately, because of the evidentiary issues, and to avoid any appellate issues down the road. I just don't understand why the judge would try to go along with the DA's argument only to have this case reversed down the road. The other interesting argument that came up was what I said. Mark or John Pryor needs to ask for what statements are going to be introduced. Prosecution says we don't need to do it. It's under 804 D2E. And Mr. Pryor, if you need it, contact me. I've got a great motion. I've got a great form where they can fill out each statement that's going to come in by which witness and under what legal theory. The prosecution doesn't want to do that. But the court needs to do this pre-trial to determine what is going to come in and what isn't. And it's going to help the court make the decision as to whether there needs to be separate trials. If the court says, no, we're going to do one joint trial, assuming Lori Vallow comes back competent at some point, but she wasn't at that hearing yesterday. Her attorneys were apparently sitting in the courtroom. So assuming Lori Vallow gets healthy, assuming we actually do this trial, it should be done twice. That's what should happen. I don't know why the courts always try to do that. Why get cute? Why try to just, just go do two trials? Just go do it. It's going to be easier. It's going to be cleaner for everybody. Anyway, you can listen to the entire hearing at the link below. Next on the docket, is Alec Murdoch going to testify at his friend's trial? Now that's friendship, right? So Alec Murdoch has uh, apparently uh, planned on invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination if called to testify in the ongoing federal trial of his former personal banker and friend, Russell Lafitte. Now, Murdoch's attorney, Jim Griffin, recently sent a letter to the court outlining the conditions under which his client would appear as a witness for Mr. Lafitte. However, Mr. Griffin declined to confirm what Mr. Murdoch wanted to testify to at trial. He also did not give any indication of what Mr. Murdoch might say in the event that he was actually called to uh, the stand. But he did say that his client, Mr. Murdoch, is willing to testify, assuming the federal government agreed to the specific conditions outlined in his letter to the court. Those conditions, well, um, apparently uh, limited use immunity. So anything that he says could not be used against him in a case against him in the future. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, and um, obviously, with the approval of the U.S. District uh, Court judge, that would have to take place. And of course, the prosecutors would have to do that. Or if there was some sort of uh, agreement to limit the scope of his testimony as to what the scope of his communications were with Mr. Russell Lafitte. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Okay. No federal prosecutor is going to give immunity of any kind to Alec Murdoch in any way whatsoever to help to come and testify and help the defendant in the case. Yeah, that's not going to happen. And the government doesn't give somebody immunity unless they know exactly what they're going to say. And it has to help the government, not the defense. Remember, this is not about justice. This is not about making sure all the truth comes out. This is about winning at this point. I know prosecutors have that ethical obligation to seek justice, not convictions. Oh, yeah, we're so far beyond that. All right. So um, in the in the uh, so the jurors in the trial, of Mr. Fleet should not expect to see Mr. Murdoch at all. And if Mr. Murdoch were to be called to the stand, it would be done 
outside the presence of the jurors so that they could not see him invoke his right not to testify uh, in front of the jury because that would be too prejudicial. Just saying, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I can't believe an attorney would agree to anything like that unless you get immunity, which the government is not going to do. Next, a day in the life of BOP inmate. That's right, the Bureau of Prison Inmate, 02879-509, also known as Ghislaine Maxwell. Well, she has taken up apparently several fun new hobbies, made some friends, and uh, really coming out of her shell in prison, according to uh, people uh, close to the situation. And apparently the victims maybe are a little outraged to learn that her new life behind bars at a low-security Florida prison is anything but bleak, hellish punishment that the uh, 60-year-old, uh, well, that many people think that maybe she deserves. So the uh, former socialite uh, works just apparently six hours a day in the prison library, uh, leaving her with a little bit of uh, excess time to stroll around the manicured grounds with a, a clique of influential inmate friends to ensure her protection, perhaps. She also got a uh, little daily access uh, to an enviable array of sporting facilities, including the uh, running track where uh, Miss Maxwell has been spotted out for afternoon jogs. Now, uh, prior to her 2019 arrest at her um, home in New Hampshire, the jet-setting Maxwell's uh, long list of high society pals included uh, disgraced of uh, former Prince Andrew and former President Bill Clinton. Well, behind bars, though, she hangs out with uh, Linda Morrow, who helped her plastic surgeon husband bilk insurers out of $44 million by pretending cosmetic procedures such as tummy tucks, breast augmentations, and vaginal rejuvenizations were medical necessities. Now, Ms. Morrow fled to Israel but was deported back in 2019 and jailed in July for more than eight years when a judge said the 70-year-old Coachella Valley native greed knew no bounds. Now, Morrow fled to Israel but was deported to the U.S. in 2019 and jailed in July for more than eight years when a judge said that the 70-year-old Coachella Valley native, well, her greed knew no bounds. Another confidant is Narcy Novak, a 65-year-old Florida woman serving life without parole for hiring hitmen to murder her hotelier husband, Ben Novak Jr., and his elderly mother, Bernice, in a grab for their family's estate and fortune. Apparently, Miss Maxwell sleeps in an open bay dormitory digs where Miss Maxwell beds down with at least 100 other inmates. Prisoners sleep in these uh, fours cubes equipped with bunk beds but no doors. They have small lockers but barely any space to store possessions and little privacy, leaving inmates vulnerable to assaults or thefts. Now, apparently Miss Maxwell's typical day begins with inmates uh, are awakened at 5 a.m. and serve breakfast on a styrofoam tray, usually grits. Who doesn't love grits? Oatmeal or toast. The uh, fitness enthusiast often completes eight to 10 laps on the running track before heading to her job at the prison library, uh, where she works from 7 to 10 a.m. After lunch, she works from noon to 3, when she can swap her uh, standard prison uniform, a button-up shirt and khaki trousers, for gray personal athletic clothing purchased from the commissary. Now, prisoners can apparently spend up to $360 a month at this facility on anything from beauty products, earrings, MP3 players, radios, and an assortment of snacks from the commissary. There are an array of recreational pursuits, uh, 
to offer, including Pilates, yoga, weights, and Frisbees. And Ms. Maxwell usually opted for pottery and crocheting classes. Before lights out at 9 p.m., Ms. Maxwell often heads outside for a leisurely walk around the athletic track. She apparently tells people that this is quite a humbling experience and, um, you know, but she's getting, she's coming out of her shell. You know, we're getting to meet the real Ghislaine Maxwell. At least she's safe. We got that going for her, right? People wanted to know, we bring it to you. All right, John Benet Ramsey. Does that name ring a bell? It should. One of the most notorious, most well-known cases in Colorado. And guess what? They're gonna take yet another look at this case. So a new effort to solve the infamous murder of the six-year-old beauty queen, John Benet Ramsey, is beginning again. Now, this is nearly 30 years after her death, and police working with a cold case review team are hoping that the new technology can help them use the very small amount of DNA evidence found on the child to create a profile to match the alleged killer. Now, the Colorado cold case review team will revisit the case next year in another bid to solve the case. If DA analysis produces the killer, it will be one of the um, American history's largest cold case breakthroughs. Now, since JonBenet's murder, detectives have investigated leads stemming from more than 21,000 tips, letters, and emails. They apparently traveled to 19 states to interview or speak with more than 1,000 individuals, and that's according to the Boulder Police Department. So can you imagine if someone's actually charged how long it's going to take for this case to go to trial? Because first they'd have to catch him, then they'd have to prosecute him, and then the defense would have to go back and revisit all of these people and re-interview them. It'll take forever. So apparently there have been several discussions with private DNA labs about the viability of continued testing of the DNA recovered from the crime scene and the genetic genealogy analysis. But the decision to utilize the new technology is not without risk. Apparently the amount of DA evidence available for analysis is extremely small and complex. The sample could, in whole or in part, be consumed by the DNA testing, according to the police that spoke uh, regarding the uh, testing. And the six-year-old was uh, reported missing back in the morning of December 26, 1996, when her father, John Ramsey, found a three-page handwritten note demanding $118,000 in $120 bills, and coincidentally, just the amount of money that he had received in a bonus. Anyway, Mr. Ramsey found his daughter's body bludgeoned and strangled in the basement close to uh, seven hours after she was reported missing. For many years following her death, John and Patsy Ram Ramsey would remain the primary suspects of their daughter's murder. It was not until 2008 that they were officially cleared, though they were never charged with any crime. Now, Patsy Ramsey died of cancer in 2006, and no one in the family was ever charged in the death. But for years, tabloids and members of the public believed one or more were the culprits. Now, private investigator Ollie Gray, who continued to investigate the murder case even after he stopped working for the Ramseys, claimed in 2016 that the child's killer was a local 26-year-old whose family owned a junkyard on the outskirts of the city, a guy by the name Michael Helgoth. Well, on February 13, 1997, Alex Hunter, who was the district attorney at the time of the murder, held a press conference where he spoke to John Benet's unknown killer, saying, the list of suspects narrows. Soon, 
there will be no one on the list but you. Helgoth died of an apparent suicide two days later at his home. Now, a few years after his death, however, Helgoth was cleared when it was revealed that none of his DNA was found under JonBenet's fingernails or in her underwear. Now, in 2006, 10 years after JonBenet's death, a 41-year-old school teacher named John Mark Carr confessed to killing the little beauty queen. He was arrested in Bangkok, Thailand, but he was never charged with the murder because his DNA did not match uh, that found on the girl's body. So the cold case unit is going to take another look. This is a multi-jurisdictional unit that takes a look at cold cases. Hopefully they can come up with something. You know, you can only test the DNA that remains there so many times without using it up. And then guess what? The defense is going to say, you used it all up. You didn't leave any for us to retest. So you have potential of destruction of exculpatory information. Let's say the test wasn't done correctly. Just saying, just, just saying. Things to think about, ladies and gentlemen. Next, a former Playboy pleads guilty to the death of her friend, 71-year-old. That's right. A former Playboy and Maxim model entered a plea deal this week in the death of a 71-year-old psychiatrist who coincidentally paid her $3,200 per month rent until he abruptly stopped in 2018. So Kelsey Turner entered an Alford plea in the case, and all that simply means is that she insists that she's innocent, but she's agreeing to the conviction and is accepting of the punishment that comes with the conviction. And in this case, it's 10 to 25 years. So when somebody says, oh, it's an Alford plea, it's different. No, it's a guilty plea. They're just allowing somebody to say, well, I'm really innocent, but I'm not. You're pleading guilty. Innocent people don't plead guilty, right? Thomas Burchard was found on March 7th, 2019, stuffed into the trunk of Turner's Mercedes-Benz, which had been abandoned in the Nevada desert. He had been beaten to death, and Turner's ex-boyfriend, John Kennison, and Diana Pena were also charged in the case. Kennison previously pled guilty to murder and conspiracy, while Pena, the couple's roommate, pled guilty to conspiracy. Pena testified that she saw Kennison hit Burchard with a bat and that Turner urged him to knock Thomas out. Authorities said that Burchard uh, had a relationship with Turner for some time and had been paying the rent uh, where she was with her two children and her mother in Salinas, California for a year. When he abruptly stopped paying the rent, the family was evicted and Turner moved to Las Vegas. Now, Burchard's longtime girlfriend, Judy Earp, reported him missing in early March. She told investigators that he had flown to Las Vegas to visit Ms. Turner. That was the last time that he was seen alive. Turner entered the plea uh, agreement this Wednesday. Sentencing is scheduled for January 10th of 2023. You've heard the quote that you get the government you deserve. Well, do you get the police force you deserve as well? So a county in California with one of the highest violent crime rates in the United States is getting rid of the daytime patrols by the local sheriff's office. In Tehama County, where about 66,000 people live and about 120 miles north of the state capital in Sacramento, they're ending their daytime patrol because employees keep leaving and apparently the salaries are not high enough to keep people there. The county's most populated city of Red Bluff has a violent crime rate higher than around 97% of the country, and there are about 9.79% violent crimes per 
1,000 residents. The sheriff's office released a statement where Sheriff Dave Hencraft admitted this was to manage a catastrophic staffing shortage throughout the agency. They also made a Facebook post uh, from the sheriff's office and it laid the blame with the county administrators and the board of supervisors writing, we have spoken to the board for several years and warned them that staffing levels are too low. Rather than take swift and decisive action, they have delayed and allowed too many good employees to leave. Now, Hencraft said that until they can return to full staffing, California Highway Patrol will be responding to emergencies that are emergencies that the sheriff's office cannot handle, and night patrol service will remain the same. The sheriff added that the sheriff's office is committed to continuing all recruitment efforts and working towards restoring patrol services. You know, it's funny. Uh, we have similar situations here where we live. There's some parts of town that they take their safety and security quite seriously and they pay the officers very, very well. And they have some of the lowest crime in the area. And let's just say there's other areas where the police are not as welcome and people don't wanna to pay to be safe. And coincidentally, you get more crime. Not saying they need police on every street corner, but you know, out of sight, out of mind. People are out there, they take care of it. Just, just saying. Just being there can be a deterrence in and of itself. Next on the docket, our dumb criminal of the day. So federal charges have been filed against James Hall. He's a 34-year-old man from Florida who police say sold a pipe bomb that he had made at his home to an undercover police officer for $800. A Tampa police detective working with an FBI task force claimed that Hall uh, informed a confidential informant that he apparently had made this pipe bomb and that uh, it could be purchased for the 800 bucks. Guess what? Hall was arrested when the confidential um, source met with Hall and he uh, gave him uh, some marijuana last year and that Hall later showed him a picture of his explosives, which was uh, made up to uh, three to four plastic jars taped together and uh, painted with camouflage. And then an undercover uh, detective met with Hall to buy the pipe bomb and uh, also threw in apparently a Glock 17 pistol uh, that uh, Mr. Hall had offered as well. And then in response to questions about future purchases, Hall said he had enough to build at least six more. Hall added uh, that the uh, device the undercover detective was purchasing had a magnet on the bottom of it because, well, you know, it was meant for someone else. Needless to say, Mr. Hall had a really bad day. He was arrested, charged with one count each of unlawfully constructing a destructive device, possessing an unregistered destructive device, and distributing explosive materials without a license. If found guilty, he is going to spend at least 10 years in prison on each count. What is it with Florida? You know, it seems like we were doing so good there for a while, but now Florida is back with the dumb criminal of the day. Hey, I get it. If you want to go make that stuff, go out in the field, but don't sell it. Just a little word of advice here. If a stranger is being introduced to you by someone that you know, they're probably a confidential informant. Just saying. Do you, you do you, but I'm telling you, don't be surprised when you find out the person that was introduced to you was a confidential informant. Just saying. All right. Thanks for watching. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.